everyone. I'm Steph Angstad. And I'm Sue Miller. And we're coming at you from the Covered Bridge Farm in Ole, Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful late afternoon. It's like misty, a little rainy. We're getting a little break from the heat of the summer. Sue and I had both a very busy day of cheese making. And now we're unwinding a bit with uh, some beautiful cheeses that were sent to us today from Lively Run Farm, Lively Run Dairy. And um, we'll tell you a little bit about them, as well as we're sipping on some cider from Good Intent, which we picked up at the Cider Festival this past weekend. Sue, tell us about it. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's the third annual Cider Festival, Pennsylvania Cider Festival. And um, there must have been, what, 35 cider producers there? It was quite an affair. Yeah, this is the third year that members of the Pennsylvania Cheese Guild have set up and shared our cheese because, you know, we pretty much know that cider and cheese are a wonderful pairing. And um, we kind of feel like kindred spirits with the up-and-coming cider makers of the state. Don't you think, Steph? I think so. I think you said it best when... um you know, you described our two guilds as really growing up together because we're both so new. And here we are, uh, farmers taking this, you know, raw agricultural product from the land and refining it and fermenting it and turning it into something um, like more of a conversation piece. So there's a lot, there's a beautiful harmony there between cider makers and cheese makers. There is. Any um, favorites for you from uh, last Saturday? Cider? Cider makers? Well, I do love Big Hill. Always fantastic. I think every cider that I tried from them uh, was beautiful. And of course, this Wixen that we're sipping on now from Good Intent is lovely with these goat and cow's milk cheeses that we're tasting from the Finger Lakes region. Um, Really beautiful tartness crisp lightly effervescent the yeah. colors beautiful a little bit of apple fruit in the back absolutely coming through i i think it's it's would be great with so many different cheeses yes absolutely um and i have to give a shout out to my neighbors Freecon orchards who oh. i always love um i bathe many of my cheeses in their cider lees and cheese loves cider hey i love that golden russet single varietal that they do it's really great it has a little bit of oak on it a little bit of yeastiness it's so good the and the golden russet you can't go wrong you can't go wrong right well we also have to shout out to our good friend ben wank Plowman Cider. Ah, fantastic. He he totally won uh, Most Innovative Cidery and also um, Cidery of the Year, voted on by his colleagues here in Pennsylvania. So congratulations, Ben. You earned it. You deserved it. Uh, You're such a bright light. We raise a glass to you, Ben. For sure. Cheers. Cheers. So in this episode, we're going to be interviewing David Rice of Clover Creek Cheese Cellar. And we're going to get into that conversation shortly. But in the meantime, we just want to tell you about a couple of other things that Collective Creamery has been up to. We've had a busy, a busy month. We have. It is June. <laughs> it is. Almost uh, July. It's uh, chaos for all you cheesemakers and dairy farmers out there right now, I'm you sure. So know you how, know where we are. You know we're peddling. We're in the weeds. But um, right. we've had a lot of fun times. So one of the events that we had recently in Philadelphia was Cheese Quizzo, hosted by our very dear friend, Madame Fromage, and friend of the podcast as well. Um, uh, at Martha. At Martha. The Cheese Clubhouse. <sighs> 
It is. Home base to all cheese lovers and cheese makers and cheese eaters. It is. It's where we've had um, many cheese events bringing in the community of cheese lovers around Philadelphia and beyond the greater region as well. Um, And they, Martha, they're just, it's a home away from home. It is. And they're open to all of our crazy ideas. And so Madame Fromage said, let's do Quizzo. Which was, I, I had never done Quizzo before. Stephanie and I are out here in the boondocks. Neither of us really, we knew there were We're in a rural involved. bubble. Yes. We are, we are. We're not <laughs> heading out for Quizzo, but what? We packed the place. We packed the house. Um, there was a tasting portion. So we made a beautiful cheese plate that people had to guess um, a little bit about the makers and the styles that were being presented. Um, and the hint was that all the cheeses we tasted were from... Pennsylvania creameries, and they were all made by women cheesemakers. So that was pretty fun. It was about girl power that night. It really was. <laughs> so we, we had a good time. Thank you to Madame Fromage and to Martha for being such wonderful hosts for that event. Um, another cool event that we had last month was a wood-fired feast, um, which happened up at my homestead in Berks County, Pennsylvania, also my ancestral homeland. Um, my husband and I have a colonial bake oven that we recently restored, and that was really fun to get to fire that up. A local artisan, Jess Feaser, did all the cooking, and pretty much every food that came out for the meal was fired in that oven, with the exception of, of course, our lovely cheeses, which were <laughs> fired in a vat. <laughs> That's true. What, what really struck me about Jess was, you know, of course, I get I got there hours after she started the oven, but I walked in um, just to peek and see where she was, and she's in her bare feet with a headlamp, you know, working in this oven. That was just, how hot is it? It's got to be like 500, 600, 700 degrees in there. Yeah. And she had it streamlined. It was it was seamless. It was beautiful. We had all sorts of traditional meat pies made with Sue's veal, um, and some of the lamb that we raise at our homestead, and we had a beautiful ham Wayfed from pork from Sue's wavehead pigs, yeah. as well as rustic she bread. She started baking bread at what time did she start baking bread? Loaf after loaf. It was early, maybe six, maybe six seven a.m. Yeah, she, yeah, it was it was a big undertaking, but um, we had a great event. We had about fifty people in attendance, and one of the main reasons for putting it together, in addition to just member appreciation for our cheese club collective creamery, um, was a fundraiser. It was a fundraising effort to send Sue and I and Alex um, to the American Cheese Society conference in Pittsburgh. This July, which we're so excited about. Um, Supporting cheesemaker education. It is. It right. is. And, you know, we also had members from the community donate some things. We did. We, we had, had Oli Valley Mushrooms. Yes. Baba's Booch. That's right. Kombucha from our good friend Olga and... Lambic beer from Karen Pelcho, who for 30 years has been an incredible home brewer and well-esteemed in the brewing community. She's right here in Oli. Wild Ales. I mean, it's interesting to see her interact in the beer world because the home brewers adore her. The breweries, you know, open for business, adore her. They revere her. They respect the process that she undergoes. And, um... I'm telling you what, it did not disappoint. 
it, she's she's a wild spirit and she brews wild ales. We love her and she made such a contribution to the event. So Wait, we're happy to have her in our cheese? corner. It was a nice pairing with the cheese. It really was. So we've been busy gals up here. We have been. Um, and without further ado, I think we should probably dive into this interview with David Rice of Clover Creek. So just a quick overview about him. David is really such an important um, ambassador, liaison of sorts between the dairy farming community and the cheese making community. Yeah, yeah, he helped found the Pennsylvania Cheese Guild. Um, I first met David, I don't know, maybe 13 years ago. We took a class together with Peter Dixon out in Western PA. And it took us both a, a minute to get our facilities up and open. And we pretty much opened and started making cheese about the same time. So we've all been on this journey together. It's really been great to see them, you know, grow their business. So there, um, Clover Creek is a family operation. They're a, a seasonal grazing operation. Um, and they're bringing in the second generation, yeah. as is our own Sue Miller here, who we're sitting with. Um, and that's, that's really important and exciting. And it's something that he's going to talk a little bit about in the interview. Right. We love that Anthony's back after graduating from Penn State with a degree in ag business. I pretty much think he's running the vat. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I think he's owning it. And um, and David is also on the board of PASA, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. And Sue, I guess I turn to you to talk a little bit about why that's so significant, because you were on the board for many years. Yeah. And um, well, PASA is an organization here in the state that really supported dairy farmers transitioning into value added. At their annual conference every February, um, they would lead a, a cheese program, and then it turned into this two-day cheese track where we they would bring in um, people from all over the country to help educate our farmers and cheesemakers here in the state. And I've got to say, um, when we did this other event last week for the Center for Dairy Excellence, we had 24 cheeses from Pennsylvania, and my heart was full. I could have cried because what we all started collectively here in the state is turned into this wondrous thing. The cheeses are beautiful. They're flavorful. They speak of Pennsylvania. They speak of the, the spirit of this community. And, um, you know, David and Pasa have been a real big part of that happening. Well, we had a wonderful conversation with him. And without further delay, let's hear what he has to say. Here's to David. Penn State, Penn Stater Conference Center in State College, Pennsylvania at the PASA Conference. Um, the PASA Conference is a conference that happens every year in February, and farmers flock to this conference. It's to support the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, of which I've been a member for years. You're a member. And our guest today, a friend of ours, David Rice, has been a member for a very long time. Uh, I was just thinking, David, I feel like the very first time I met you, 
correct me if I'm wrong, was at a cheese class. Was here. Yeah. yeah. And oh, it was here. And then we met up at a cheese class in Western PA with I Peter think, Dixon. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't have known David because he's from like deep cent- central Pennsylvania, Blair County, and I'm down near Philadelphia. And so this conference is really important to all of us in Pennsylvania. It brings us all together. So we're super excited to be talking with you. You have had a banner year out at Clover Creek Cheese Cellars, and we just want to pick your brain, right, Steph? Yeah, we've been excited for this interview for a few weeks now, and um, we decided that it was at the PASA conference that we would try to grab you, pin you down for a conversation. Um, And I just want to mention, too, you know, this time of year, it's early February, there's snow on the ground, we have, um, you know, a few hundred farmers brought together at the Penn State or in State College, um, and they're, you know, planning for their coming farm seasons, and they're soaking up all this knowledge, and it's this really collaborative environment. Um, and I think it's just the pro- appropriate context for interviewing you, David, because you are such a collaborator, and you are involved in a lot of organizations that um, really are here to support the dairy farming and cheese making industries, and really build a sense of community. And maybe that's a good starting point. I I guess I want to hear a little bit about how you got involved with PASA and with the PA Cheese Guild and and what it means to you. Our involvement with PASA started, um, I think it's like 26 years ago, when they came to us and asked us asked us to um, keep track of what it would cost to switch from a conventional dairy to a grazing dairy. And then we did that for a full year and presented here at our first conference what had changed because we switched to grazing. And that was, that got us involved with PASA and got us excited about the vision for PASA that farmers could come and share their experiences, share what they learned in making choices and changes, and then share that so everybody else could learn from their good ideas and also their mistakes. That's one thing I love about PASA is people here are willing to say, uh, don't make this mistake because I did that last year and I don't want anybody else to go through that. That's amazing. What was that? Let's dive right into that. What was that transition like 26 years ago? We had went from a conventional farm to fencing the whole farm off. And um, it started out with just temporary fencing. I'm one to try things for a couple years before I make something permanent. So for the first couple years, we were setting up and taking down fences all the time. And um, it ended up being that it was financially beneficial to us to go switch to grazing. And that's when we switched to 100% grass on our farm. Did you do seasonal then as well? Or did you transition? To we transitioned seasonal? to seasonal later. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, what were, I mean, to me, some things pop out would be really, um, some real challenges in going from year round to seasonal and the fact that maybe you can't get all the cows bred at the same time. So then you have to make the tough decision what cows are going to have to leave the farm. So what, what would you say like two of the biggest challenges were? Yeah. The funny thing is once you make one decision, it kind of, um, or snowballs into making another decision. You have to, um, probably one of the biggest changes that we made then is we were all registered Holsteins when we started and registered Holsteins just did not do well on pasture for us and they did not do well seasonal. So we started crossbreeding and it's funny how we actually ended up with more a milking shorthorn herd because they end up having heifer calves in March. And that was our priority was to have as many cows to calve in March as possible. We have a lot of other crossbreds and we have some still have some registered jerseys 
we have some Ayrshires, we have some, a lot of other crosses. We've um, crossed to linebacks, we've crossed to different European bulls. And so we have quite a mixed herd, but we've also found out that that is also beneficial to cheese making because there's something about that mixed milk that we think just makes a higher quality cheese. What's the best crossbred? Which which do you think is the best? Or are you just thinking, so where are you going after the second generation? Because we hear a lot, you know, when you crossbreed those jerseys to something else, you know, that second after that second generation, you know, there are some challenges. Yeah, I think my favorite cross was uh, a Holstein jersey, milking shorthorn cross. You get some really interesting markings. And they just seemed to, to have a lot of milk on pasture, and they did really well. Right. They're well rugged. Yeah, they're, rugged. they can handle about anything. And the winters are cold where you are. We're probably 10 degrees colder than you are. That's what we figure most of the time. When, when we head south and east, we figure, oh, it's going to be 10 degrees warmer down there. Right. We have it so easy where we are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Other uh, than in the yeah. summer, I'd much rather live. We don't have air conditioning because we don't need it. Right. Our nights are always in the 60s. That's great for the cows in, yeah, in the heat of the summer. Us. I mean, like, uh, I try to not have anybody calve the last two weeks of July into the first two weeks of August because I'm really worried about those older cows the having heat some heat stress. Um, and you do keep some, um, still some registered cows because your kids were in 4-H and would show and we would see you at the cow shows. Yeah. That was always Just fun. Just a few more years, then they're done. Yeah, and then you're done. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, which is pretty cool because um, David's had the ne- next generation his oldest son, Anthony, has come back to the farm and is really instrumental in the the farm and the cheesemaking business, which we're all so excited about. Yeah, he graduated from Penn State here and then came back home to the farm and basically took over the cheese end of the operation. Some of that was also things that changed in, in the industry at that point. Um, we had to start writing a bunch of things down and keeping track of different things for the um, HACCP plan or now the food safety plan. And we hoped he could come home and spend his time making cheese, but he spent a good bit of time just writing up stuff for regulations. Anthony is a really great research researcher and wonderful with computers and technical skills. I'm always in awe of him. And, you know, for him to, like, be able to take some time and focus on that must have been a real benefit to the farm. And, and it's so nice to be able to say, Anthony, can you do that instead of me doing it? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I'm sure it's wonderful to have that additional support. David, could you give us a bit of a snapshot of your farm, how many acres you have in production, um, and you know, sort of how you break out your family roles in terms of the farm management? Uh, and we will talk about cheese later. So I guess the question is specific to your, your land. We have 126 acres total, about 70 of that is grazable, and then we rent um, seven acres from one neighbor and about 15 acres from another neighbor, and all that is in 100% grass, divided into about 20-some different pastures. So we do, we rotationally graze, move the cows from pasture to pasture each day, and um, that's one of the reasons why we ended up getting into cheese is because um, we thought we had a little bit different milk because it was 100% grass milk, and a cooperative will not pay you any different because of where the, what the cows are fed or, or where it's coming from. So our, our first idea was to look into yogurt, and at that point, nobody in our area even ate yogurt. So we ended up going with cheese because we figured it was more, um, it could last a lot longer. It, shelf life was much longer. And as far as we are from any major population, that that, that was the best for us. When did you start making, what year was that, David, that you started making cheese? Well, we actually had somebody else make our cheese for f- 
two years. That's right. I forgot that. Because we had been told by a lot of people, marketing is actually the most difficult part of, of cheese. And so for two years, we had somebody else make our cheese. And um, we practiced at trying to sell it. And it is very difficult spending that time trying to sell, sell your product. And, um, but after two years, we figured we were close enough to wanting to do it. So that was 2007. We built our own cheese plant and started making everything right there on the farm. Yeah. And at, at Clover Creek, you know, this, this period of time when you started this, it was you and Terry and your kids. It's not like you had staff, you had family members. So you're managing the cows, you're managing the pastures, you're raising a family. And then, you know, learning about cheese making and then marketing the cheese. I always think back to that first weekend when we made cheese together, all of us with Peter Dixon. And he said, you know, cheese making really needs to be threefold. You need somebody to manage the cows. You need somebody to make the cheese. And then you should have somebody to market it. And I thought, oh, we can do all those things. But it's a challenge, isn't it, David? Much so. And part of our plan was to have the children involved. And so that's that's our hope for the future, that at least a few of them will come back to the farm and, and be involved. And we saw this as a way to get to get and keep them involved in the farm. Well, it's only in the United States that we um, are bold enough to attempt to do everything from the farming and milk production to the cheese making, to the affinage, and to the selling and distribution of cheese. It's a lot. And I just have to praise you, uh, David, for making this beautiful transition from conventional to grass-fed, from milk production to cheese production, and now a transition from one generation to the next. And um, maybe that's what we could talk a little bit about is, you know, how, how this transition is playing out in its early stages. Well, yeah, that's actually this, we are seasonal. So February, we try to, to um, quit milking so we can do other things. Of course, the cows don't always get that memo. So once again, this year, it's not worked out as we planned, but we'll make it work. And our, our, one of our goals for this year was to um, bring Anthony into the operation. And that's worked out really well. Um, our neighbors have rented us a pasture right in front of our house for the past 27 years since we moved there. And um, this year they called us up and said, would you guys want to buy that pasture? And so the plan is that actually rather than us buying it, Anthony's going to buy it. And that will be his buy-in to the family operation at this point. So we're working through that with the lawyer and our accountant right now. So this month of February, we're trying to get all that ironed out and figured out, but it's a lot to to process through. I think that's a really smart move, David. And I'm just heartened by the fact that the way you're doing it, that that's going to be Anthony's investment into the farm. And I often think, um, for those of you who are listening who are farming, you, you, my husband always says, you only have one opportunity in a lifetime to buy the ground next to you. So the fact that Mm -hmm. you're leveraging that opportunity is really beneficial. That's exciting. Yeah. And there is something symbolic about um, you know, having the next generation really make a physical investment because there is this theory that we value something more if we've had to work at it or if we've had to earn it or invest in it. And rather than just, you know, a simple handoff, it's you're asking the next generation to really commit. And I think that's smart and it's beautiful. It yeah. is. It is. And, you know, clearly Anthony's doing a wonderful job making some of these cheeses. Um Clover Creek is just off a big win at the Pennsylvania Farm Show with the cheese that I have 
been following along since they first started called Royer's Mountain. Um, tell us about, you know, what into, what went into that batch of cheese. We're hoping to add it into our collective creamery cheese share coming up soon if there's any hanging around that we can procure for some friends. <laughs> but tell us it's about that. It's being shipped this month. Yes. Excellent. Good, good. <laughs> it's coming, so, yeah, coming it's, through. It's coming. I know. I said so. David's very good at shipping cheese. He'll get it to us. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Anthony, once he took over the cheese making, he started adjusting the recipes slightly. And that particular batch um, – our Royal Mountain was originally a baby Swiss, and it was tasting different, so we switched it to being an Alpine cheese, and then everybody started telling us it started tasting like a Romano, and so Anthony kind of modified that recipe to be more a Romano style, and that batch, that particular batch turned out really nice, so that's when we decided to send. And it's kind of a funny story how we ended up, um, what happened um, many years ago is we ac- accidentally dumped some feta whey into our brine tank and the next batch in there was our Royer Mountain and when it came back out everybody said that really tastes like Romano because I, I guess they, they traditionally put a little lipase in Romano oh. and with the, the lipase in the feta whey it, it gave it that flavor and so that's that's when we kind of started swinging it from a baby Swiss to more a Romano style and as, as we've been aging our cheeses longer um, that's how that one actually ended up being more of a Romano than a baby Swiss. That's great and it's a beautiful wheel. I love the I love the way the wheel looks. the The rind is just a, a beautiful living thing. The hue, the patina to it, it's pretty amazing. That golden color of the paste from the from the grass fed milk is really beautiful too. That's always striking to me when you see a cut wedge on the shelves. Um, and you have pretty good distribution. Are you shipping with across the state? Are you shipping beyond state borders? We've shipped beyond the state borders as well. Um, we, we're working more and more with distributors just because of the time factor that we sure. can't be everywhere. So we have a number of distributors now, mm-hmm. and that's really helped. And we are shipping more and, and more out of state. So that's yeah, that's helpful. How many, um, how many cows are you milking during the grazing season, and how many pounds of cheese are you making? We year? will hope be milking about 50 to 60 this year. Um, we are no longer able to ship to our co-op because of some of the changes in the co-op and in the, the federal regulations that they've changed. So we made the choice to leave our co-op. So this year we will have to make everything into cheese and sell it as raw milk. Yeah, that's so that'll be, be our challenge. Because you won't have a balancer. You're going to be your own balancer. And for those of you listening, so if there was an oversupply of milk. Um, the folks at Clover Creek could ship to the co-op. Milk truck could come in and pick it up. I mean, you paid a premium to be able to have that service. Um, and every year it's got more expensive. Right. And I was shocked at how they really slapped you with that fee. Um, but so now they're going to be committed to making all the cheese from all the milk, making cheese from all the milk. And so that also made us, we will have, we'll have more cows than that. We will plan was to sell cows. So we wouldn't have to milk as many, but we still haven't managed to get those sold. We're getting, it's all, it's a work in progress. You make plans and you readjust your plans as life changes. (laughs) It's a work in progress. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big challenge though. Do you, do you feel like you'll need more staff, more help, a more efficiency? What will support you? Well, that's partially why we're reducing um, cow numbers to get to where we can handle it. And we've done a lot of things. I, I mean, yeah, I forgot to say that, but we have also switched to once a day milking. Oh, with okay. with cheese making, once a day milking is just, especially if you don't want extra milk. If you want more cheese and less milk, once a day milking is wonderful. Um, actually, the kids outvoted me last year. I, I 
I usually said we're milking twice a day till about July, and then we're going to one today. Right, once. as they get to the tail as, end of as lactation. As the cows stop giving as much milk, and as there's less grass out there on the pastures, we'd go to once a day milking. And it just got so crazy last spring. They finally said, uh, we're only milking once a day from now on. I don't care what you say. <laughs> well, did your past, your pastures must have stayed really strong all through the growing season last year? Well, we do feed hay if we have to, but okay. yeah, this past year we did not. There's been right. two or three years now since we've been farming that we have not had to feed hay in the summertime. Right. Because we had, we, it was really wet here in the East Coast all year. Yeah, it was a great grazing so, year. It was a really, I heard that from other grazers. Other than the guy I buy hay from was. <laughs> Pulling his hair out because he I never know. had a dry day. <laughs> hard, hard year to make a lot of good hay here in Pennsylvania, but that's great. I want to ask, since we're talking about pastures and we're here at PASA, um, do you have any um, grazing uh, people who have inspired you or books or teachers who you've leaned on over the years to develop your grazing practices? PASA was pushing grazing very much when we switched to grazing and that we learned a lot through PASA. So that was very, very good source of information. A number of farmers we met here inspired us in those ways. Um, probably one of the people yeah, I listened to a lot was, I don't know if you guys know Glenn Moyer. He ran the, oh, what was that farm? Some sort of conservancy farm for a number of years. Yeah, I can't pull up the name of it. If we'll see if we can find the name and yeah. put it in the notes. And right. then and then he moved um, about forty five minutes south of us. So we often would visit him and and talk to him about you know what works, what doesn't work, and that was probably um, one inspiration. I was also part of Project Grass for a while, and just being able to go to other people's farms and see what they were doing and hear what they were doing. Once again, hearing their good ideas and their mistakes, it was very very helpful. Sure. Any lessons learned? Uh, mistakes. Sometimes you learn from those mistakes. How long is this? <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded question, Stephanie. <laughs> how about yeah? Well, how about with the cheese making? Like, who do you think influenced you know your philosophy on? on well, our biggest cheese? thing. Well, once again, it comes back to pasta. Um, we we put in our cheese plant in two thousand seven. And they called us up as they knew we were putting it. I think at the February meeting, we told them we were putting in a new cheese plant. And so they called us up after the February meeting and said, uh, could you have a three-day class at your farm once you have your cheese plant up and running? And we were like, oh, yeah, that would be nice. So they actually they got this guy called Neville McNaughton oh, no. to come and um, teach us how to make cheese. And it, that was that was so invaluable to what we did because he went through everything. I mean, he stayed late one night and he walked through the back rooms and the, the water lines and where the water came from and, you know, where, where this was and where that was. And, and he basically went through everything and um, said, well, this is the best way to do it. And I guess one thing I've always appreciated about him is he's very practical. He, he's not like, you know, you need to invest $100,000 to do this. He's like, okay, you have that. Uh, if you do this, this, and this, we can make it work until you have money to buy the, to the better thing. equipment. That's that's great. Do you still work with Neville at all? Or? We have a little bit. Um, yeah. Last time we ran into him, I think he's semi-retired now. So. Seems like he's on his motorcycle a lot. Well, he came on his motorcycle, so <laughs> oh. that was, that was kind of like, you came all the way from Missouri on a motorcycle for this he's class? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's been back to our farm twice. Oh, um, he was when he runs through. I think when ACS was in Rhode Island. Oh, he came back down through and okay. we had him had him stop in and go through a couple recipes with yeah. us again. Yeah. 
So how did you decide which cheeses to make initially? Basically we went with what we had been selling and, um, it seemed like there was, there's always a demand for cheddar cause that's, I'm still amazed how many people come up to our farmer's market and say, are all these cheddars? And it's like, no, we have this, this, and this is cheddar, but this is this and this is, and so many people just, you know, they think cheese, they think cheddar. It begins and ends sure. with cheddar. Yeah. Sure. That's our uphill climb sometimes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why that's even, I hate to say it, I hate making cheddar because it's so much work. It's a long day. It's a long day. It's our longest day. Yeah. But if that's what the customer wants, that's what they want. And then basically we've tried different things. With going to farmer's markets, we probably do more cheeses than we should. Um, we're up in the 15, 16, 17 different kinds of cheese range. And the idea behind that is if you're going to a farmer's market, you might as well have something that at least one cheese that everybody will like. But um, it, life would be a lot simpler if we only made two or three kinds. Yeah, I, I, I think about that too. And I mean, this is a totally unfair question to say, is there one cheese that you really like a little bit better than the others? I mean, it's kind of like asking somebody which child is their favorite child, <laughs> well, and it's not really fair to ask that. But well, if you had to choose yeah, if you one had to, choose to make one. for the rest the, of the, your life. The first batch I tried on my own that really turned out was a, a Gouda or a Howda mm -hmm. recipe. And so I'm always kind of a little bit partial to that just because it was my first baby that oh, looked nice. <laughs> that's good. I like that. And then I always liked the Royal Mountain, too, because it, it's similar to that. It's, it's For me, it's an easier cheese to make. Mm -hmm. And then um, we came up with another cheese that we started out, um, our Uncle Joe's. We started out with one recipe. And, I was going to ask about Uncle Joe's. And Well, we, we called it Uncle Joe's because the original recipe was a brick recipe, and our kid's Uncle Joe was a brick mason. So we <laughs> said, we'll call it Uncle Joe's after Uncle Joe. And well, the other funny story behind that, we were at their place one time and, and he had an old bottle of homemade wine. That's the what that, I that my sister was trying to get rid of, get out of the house. And so she said, take this wine. And, and I said, okay, we'll use it to soak, to put, put on our cheese. And so that's why it ended up being called Uncle Joe's. And then over the years, it has kind of um, morphed into an Asiago style because people kept on telling us that tastes like an Asiago. So it's finally like, okay, well, we'll look at the Asiago recipe and just start turning it that direction. So it's funny how things, you start out with one thing and once again as life, as the, things change it. Yeah, the milk will tell you what it wants to be in a lot of cases, I think. And again, the customers have changed a lot about what we've done. Um, mm. Yeah, what do you think the biggest change is? And is it in the um, insatiable appetite for many different styles of cheeses? What do you think the biggest change has been for you going to farmer's market with your cheese lineup? Actually, it's probably more um, animal welfare issues anymore that people are asking, like, you know, when we first started making cheese, one of the little kids came in and said, you don't dock cow tails like all your neighbors do, do you? And we're like, yeah, we don't anymore. So I guess we won't anymore if little kids are asking about this. And um, yeah, there's just little things like that. That And that's one of the, I mean, we went to 100% grass because customers wanted 100% grass. Probably the next thing we're going to is probably A2A2 because we've been hearing more people asking about that. And our herd, we've been breeding to A2A2 bulls for years. So, Yeah. Do you have an, a thought about what the percentage of the herd is, A2A2? We, we tested 10 okay. and only one was A1A1. So we're headed in the right direction. Right. There you go. And, you know, I feel like the A2A2, this conversation has been going round and round here in the U.S. I'm going to say 20 years, but I think it's really starting to take hold, you know, where you're seeing. seems like once the consumers start asking about yeah. it, it's time for farmers to start right. asking ourselves those questions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Let's look under the microscope. What is 
growing on the rinds of your cheese in the um, cellar that you have, or are there multiple cellars? We do have three. Okay. Three cellars, um, mm-hmm. and that was that was one of our big mistakes. We tried to put blue cheese <laughs> in the same cooler with our other ah, cheeses, yeah. <laughs> and we ended up with uh, wild blue cheddar, wild blue this, wild blue that, and so we finally decided we needed a separate blue cooler. And that has helped a good bit to do mm-hmm. that, to keep the, those blue molds from jumping under the rinds of the Our other cheese. Control the environment. So. Are the caves underground? It's actually in the old bank barn oh, okay. of oh, our nice. farm. Um, and actually, it was our state inspector that told us that. He was like, you call yourself cheese sellers, so why don't you turn the old barn into a cellar? And we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so that's Basically, the, the old barn was remodeled into our cheese plant, and our cheese cellars then are up against the back wall mm-hmm. of that bank bank barn. I was just, now that you brought up about your blue cheese, I kind of feel like a moment that was really pivotal for you in making that blue cheese was probably that year that you were awarded the grant from um, Slow Food Pittsburgh. And this was really cool. Slow Food Pittsburgh had made a commitment. They wanted to see more diversity of cheese in Western PA. Correct me if I'm wrong. And um, so they supported a couple of family farms with this grant so that they could uh, study something of interest. And I was so envious and you actually offered for us to come on this trip, but you and Terry used that grant money to go to Argentina and study with a cheesemaker there. Can you talk about that experience? It was, I'd be ready to move to Argentina anytime. We, we had such a good, good time down there. Um, we had heard Gianna Cliss Caldwell here at PASA again that fall, I mean, that February. And, um, so I emailed her and said, do you know somewhere I could go to learn a different style right, of cheese? And she had written a story about this. She had written a story too. about Pablo in, in her book. And she suggested him because he and his wife had a bed and breakfast where they also teach people how to make cheese or improve cheeses. So I emailed Part of the, the part of the application process was to have a written out plan, and I knew um, Lori Salenberger had won the year before, and she was frustrated by not having somebody really helping her write out this plan. So I emailed Pablo, and within three days, he had a written out plan of where we would stay, what we would do, which cheeses we would learn about, and where all we would other cheesemakers in Argentina we would visit, and that basically that got us the grant because he was so organized. And once again, I just enjoyed his practicality. He was another one of those people that said, okay, this is what we have. This is what we're going to make with it. And we're not going to waste money. We're not going to buy the latest fad. We're, we're going to figure out a way to use what we have to, to make these cheeses. So yeah, we ended up flying into um, Buenos Aires. He picked us up at the airport, took us out to his bed and breakfast. Um, in the mornings, we um, made three or four different kinds of cheeses. I'm looking at Terry here because she's helping me remember. And and the rough thing was while while we were down there, it was the end of February, wasn't it? And the poor kids at home kept on Skyping us saying, we had another 10 inches of snow last night. We're now at 25 inches. We're now at 28 inches. Meanwhile, we are sitting by the pool in the afternoon and <laughs> <laughs> learning how that's to funny. make cheese. <laughs> yeah, that's right. David just told us earlier that he doesn't travel anywhere unless he can visit a farm or a cheese maker. Which is pretty much how we operate too. Yeah. yeah. What a great experience. And that was a cool thing. Um, Pablo's family actually has seven dairy farms around him. So we, you know, um, I usually get up in the morning and go with him to get the milk to make the cheese. And so we toured the dairy farms as we were getting the milk. And it was fascinating seeing all of that at once. 
What was your takeaway from that experience? Like, if you can condense it into something that was so valuable to you. Well, once again, that was as we were... We were, it's a while ago. So. We were remodeling the cheese plant for Anthony to come home from college. So we were expanding. And probably our biggest takeaway was, was once again, we had an experienced cheesemaker go through our plans for the plant and, you know, tell us, well, you should do this. You should do that. You should rearrange this. You should. For workflow. For workflow, for right. milk flow, for things. Yeah, that was probably what we really gained from it. Plus, he did go over all of our recipes once again and give us give us ideas for that other than the big challenge was everything was in liters and celsius and trying to convert right and between spanish and yeah do my you work spanish in fahrenheit or celsius in the vat we do fahrenheit in the vat but for some reason we've always done milliliters and liters okay. for other things so right. we're, we're really confused cheese makers <laughs> <laughs> and you're making all uh raw milk cheeses yes is that correct okay and is that important to you in terms from a philosophical perspective? well we started selling raw milk first and so I've I've always preferred raw milk and raw milk cheeses. And I guess actually that probably goes back to my um, senior project in college. I did a, a research paper on why raw milk is good for you. And I've never been convinced otherwise, especially if you know your cattle and you take care of them properly and yes. know you have healthy, <laughs> yeah. healthy animals. There's no reason why your raw milk can't be a lot better. Do you still milk. carry the fluid raw milk license? We do, yes. You and do. we sell right off the farm. Um, I think we sold forty thousand dollars worth of raw milk last year. So wow. it's a good it makes a, a good a difference Amazing. for a family farm. And you know, and right? it's cash up front. That's what's nicer than cheese. Cheese sure. sometimes you're sitting on that cheese forever until you get paid for it. It's an investment. And we're yeah. in one of the harshest um, milk pricing collapses that we've seen, at least in for us through dairying. So um, I really think it's fantastic the way you have transitioned out of this conventional marketplace, you know, so that you can control the price that you're getting for the milk. And well, we see its benefit because the next generation. Other than we have to be honest, is that we can, we get what we want for our milk, but there's no guarantee we'll sell it. Well, that's true. So that's, I yeah. mean, if you're with a co-op, you're guaranteed they'll take all your milk. They just may not pay you anything for it. But that's we, when the cheese making comes in handy. We have to worry about getting sold. So that's, and as we learned this morning, that's probably our log jam, our problem is getting it sold. So according to the class we took this morning, we should be spending all of our time on selling cheese and not worry about anything else. But wow. that's not practical. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Um, we ask we ask every cheese maker these questions. Um, what are um, the greatest challenges that you face as it relates to cheese making? And then what has come really easily for you over the years? I'm going to go with the easy first. I always loved chemistry and biochemistry and animals. Cool. So this basically ties all those things together. Just just the chemistry and biochemistry that's going on in a cheese vat and the fact that, you know, you en can enjoy the animals and getting collecting the milk from those animals. It's that's to me that's my most enjoyable. The relationship with the with, cows and yeah. and yeah, and the cheese and working together as a family. We really enjoy. Mm. Even though you may not believe it sometimes when you hear us working, but we enjoy working together. <laughs> <laughs> That's reality right there. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, just this past year, the biggest challenge is regulatory. What else can you say? Um, when there's rules written, but you have no idea how they're going to be interpreted, mm -hmm. how do you run a business not knowing what, what you're going to get hit with next? Right. Yeah, David's been really instrumental with the Pennsylvania Cheese Guild heading up our regulations committee. And, you know, 
we're fortunate that I, I really feel that PDA wants to work with us on a lot of this, and we have a really great relationship with them. But, oh, my gosh, thank you. You've done such a good job with that committee and keeping everybody informed, and we're constantly throwing ideas off of each other on that committee. Well, and it's constant. Yeah, it's a constant. We can't rest. No. It's not going away. <laughs> and you're, you're such a good representative for the industry um, in that you, know, you have your hand in multiple aspects of um, the, the farm, the grazing, the cheese making, the milk production. You're also selling raw fluid milk. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot. There's a lot that you're engaged with, and you have this sort of bird's eye view of your farm, and you can translate that to um, to the broader industry. I think perspective is so important when it comes to these questions. And to make a plug for the PA Cheese Guild. Um, you know, for all you cheesemakers listening out there, we do, we need you, you know, now is the time to have a collective voice. Um, other guilds and other states have had great success finding strength in numbers and working together to represent um, an industry that has real economic draw. And as long as we can, we can show our economic value um, and our political value in the state, um, then then we have a strong voice and we can get things done and we can really prop ourselves up um, because there, there always seems to be some obstacle coming our way. And uh, you can't fight it alone. There's no way to do that. That's true. <laughs> and sometimes just sharing the pain really helps too. Oh, commiserating <laughs> is the best, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And now I have your cell phone. You should be on that. Call go through uh terry or whatever but now watch out we'll be texting yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness um well is there anything else uh any parting words you want to share with uh our radio program today just yeah keep at it <laughs> yeah. never give up <laughs> never give up and you know david i want to take this moment to just really thank you for everything you've contributed to the guild over the years and David's now on the board of PASA. He's really our cheesemaker, dairy farmer, one other dairy farmer on the board representative. And, you know, he's carrying our voice through this state organization and it's not easy to leave the farm and do this, but I really honor your commitment to that. So thank you. Other than I have big shoes to fill with trying to follow you and Mel having been on PASA <laughs> and doing Getting things done there. I mean, Total love fest over here at State College <laughs> right now. <laughs> There's a lot of cheesemakers that, yeah, it was it was coming here. It was you guys planning that helped us get involved and, yeah, got us to where we are today. It's a cool community. And I will mention that um, Sue Miller here and Melanie Dietrich Cochran of Keswick Creamery um, were both honored at last night's dinner for nine and a half years of service on the board of PASA. So thank you, Sue, for all, and Melanie, for all you've done to support the cheesemaking community in yeah. our state. Yeah, it was an honor and it was really fun <laughs> and hard at times. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, you uh, you'll understand. Thanks, thanks so much. Thanks again, David Rice, thank you. Clover Creek Cheese Cellars. Um, you can look them up online. Their cheeses are wonderful. And David is really good at shipping. So keep that in mind, all you cheesemongers who might be interested in um, stocking some of these award-winning cheeses. They're fantastic. And um, we can't wait to have them in our cheese share next month. I know. That's great. <laughs> all right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank 
Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.